The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer greatly from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Then Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. God forbid, Lord, no such thing shall ever happen to you. He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an obstacle to me. You are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What profit would there be for one to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Or what can one give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in his Father's glory, and then he will repay all according to his conduct. The Gospel of the Lord. Last week, we continued with the uh, reflections upon Holy Mass and uh, concluded the first portion of the liturgy, the first portion of the Mass. Today, we refer to it as the Liturgy of the Word, because obviously the main piece is the readings. But it was traditionally called the Mass of the Catechumens. It was that portion of the Mass in which the catechumens, those who were preparing to become, and to become Catholic, that they would come and they would listen to the Word of God. And then after the, after the readings and after the homily, a uh, prayer would be offered over them and then they would be sent off uh, to go and to prepare, uh, to continue their preparation for the day that they would receive the sacraments of initiation. And so it's an important piece to be able to continue to remind ourselves that that first section of the Mass is indeed for all people to come and to hear. That everyone should hear the word of God proclaimed to them. To be able to have the word of God applied to their life as the homily intends to do each week. But the second part of the Mass is especially for us, the faithful. In fact, that's what it was called. It was called the Mass of the Faithful. It's not as if there were two Masses. It was simply the second part of the Mass was the part that intentionally recognized and affirmed and focused on the reality that we are one body in Christ, that we are a community. And as such, there are things that we only do as a close-knit family. And so the catechumens would go, and then the family would have their close, their close time of intimate prayer with one another. And that's where we begin today, the second part of the liturgy. It begins with the creed, the profession of our faith. Now, the creed can be one of those things that seems rather, you know, kind of boring to read through. It's just a, a list of things that we believe in that doesn't seem to be necessarily um, incredibly powerful. Uh, and then, you know, we talked about the glory and how the glory is, is, is a pouring forth of our love for God and gratitude for his mercy. But the creed is simply a, a, a statement of facts. And so it can seem like it's kind of missing the point. But in fact, the creed is very important for us in the transition that we experience 
into the second part of the Mass. Because the Creed is the place where we profess the things that make us different and make us unique among all the people in the world. We profess our faith, the one thing that makes us a family. And so we boldly and joyfully profess it. Prior to the, the translation change some, I think, five, five or six years back now, the creed was often begun, we believe. But whenever the translation was, uh, was revised a few years back, the translation was changed to, I believe. And there's an important reason for that. One is simply faithfulness to the Latin text. The Latin text itself literally says, I believe. But the more important piece is it's a recognition that if we just say we believe, we kind of lose ourselves in the midst of a larger crowd. But to say I believe, it means I'm actually claiming the faith for my own. I believe in one God. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I believe. So it's a profession not of just a a general thing of, you know, we as Catholics believe these things. But rather it's saying, I believe this. Countless Christians through the life of the church have shed their blood, have died for these words. These things which we pray and profess each week. I believe. And so it's a perfect way for us to begin this second part of the liturgy. To claim for my own what we as Catholics believe. And each of us claiming it individually for ourselves, together, collectively, we profess it as our Catholic faith. The thing that binds all of us together is all of us individually believe these particular things. In believing them, we will soon put them into practice in the celebration of the Eucharist. But before we get to that point, it's important to recognize that even within the prayer of the creed, There's a point at which our body is supposed to change. Our body posture reacts to the words that we pray. Prior to the Second Vatican Council, whenever we got to the part about the incarnation where our Lord took flesh, everyone would genuflect. So, if you're standing there and everyone around you drops to their knees, you would notice, right? If you were the only one standing there, you'd kind of go, what did I miss? (laughs) Right? With the revised liturgy that we celebrate, we no longer genuflect, but we are called to make a profound vow. I, in fact, don't know if you'll make a profound vow or not because I'm doing it myself. And part of the thing is whenever you make a profound vow, you're staring at the floor. I can't see (laughs) y'all. But it's important for us to recognize that because the incarnation, the fact that Jesus came among us, that God took on our flesh... Is a sign that he humbled himself to be among us. And if he humbled himself to be among us, we humble ourselves at the recognition of what he's done for us. And so in the praying of the creed, when it gets to the line about the incarnation, we bow. Not just a simple bow of the head, a profound bow. Bow at the waist. To be able to, to give ourselves to the Lord in humility. To recognize his humility and to try to enliven in, 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 in it ourselves within our own soul. And so we bow at those blessed words. If you're confused about what part that is, it's easy. Just look at it in the Missalette. I think it's page 7 or 8, right there in the front. It actually includes the line, all bow until the words such and such. It's rather simple and straightforward. 
But it's a great way for us to remember to allow our bodies to speak of the mysteries of God. To recognize that, that whenever we stand, when we sit, anything we do through the course of the Mass has spiritual significance. And so we bow before this great mystery of our God taken on our flesh. At the end of the creed, we move into the universal prayers, what we often call the prayers of the faithful. And this structure is, is pretty well defined uh, if, we, if we kind of pay attention to it. There's the introduction typically by the priest, and then the first prayer is always for the church. It may be the church and all of our members throughout the world. It may be for the pope. It may be for the pope and the bishops. But the reality is that the first prayer is always for the church. So we pray for ourselves that the Lord might continue to uphold us in his grace and his strength to be able to do and to be who we are called to be and to do what we are called to do. And then after that, we pray for our other leadership throughout the world. We pray for the needs of the world. We pray for those who are sick or suffering, for various intentions uh, that are given to us through the course of the liturgy. Oftentimes these prayers, <clears throat> excuse me, oftentimes these prayers are, are done in connection with the readings. So they'll have some kind of um, connection to tie in to make everything kind of flow a little bit better. And at the end, we always pray for the dead. The last intention is for our beloved dead. Because it reminds us, every single liturgy, that we're not just a people on earth. That we are the body of Christ in three places. The body of Christ triumphant in heaven. The body of Christ suffering in purgatory. And body of Christ militant, the one of us who are still on earth, fighting for our salvation. And so we recognize in this universal prayer that it's not just the universe directly around us, but it's also the universe above us. The ones in heaven praying for us. Just as we're praying for the world and we're praying for those who have died who are in purgatory. So it's a wonderful sign of the universality of the church. Not just in a single time, but all times and all places. That we pray for one another. And all throughout the world, whether we're mindful of it or not, other brothers and sisters in Christ are praying for us. It should be a consoling thing. As we continue to lift each other up communally and universally in the gift of our prayers. The next piece that we move to immediately following the universal prayer is the offertory, which I would say is one of the most misunderstood and, and mis... I, I, don't, I, I don't know how to make up a word. Mistaken advantage of? Whatever that... Put that in normal words. We don't take advantage of the offertory as much as we could. We allow it to simply pass along as another thing in the course of Mass, kind of like an intermission, right? At a play, you got halftime, you know, they get, you got the intermission between, you know, the football games, you got halftime, other things, you got a break, everybody kind of goes to get snacks, you got to do, you do what you do in the, in the meantime, and the same thing can kind of, you know, mentally happen in Mass. This is about the halfway point, more or less, and the servers and father do their thing, and the choir sings their thing, and the ushers do their thing, and you... Do your thing and, you know, it's just kind of cleaning up, you know, taking care of whatever needs to be done. But if that's all it is, if it's just intermission where we kind of check out for a few minutes before we check back in, then we have missed something incredibly, incredibly important. Because the offertory is the place where we make our gift to God. And the gift that we make is not just our financial gift. It's not just our bread and our wine. The gift we make what we're supposed to make is ourselves, our very life. 
In the reading from St. Paul today to the Romans, he speaks to them and to us, and he says, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. A living sacrifice. Now, in the Old Testament times, they had the, the various sacrifices. They would slay an animal. It would be killed once, and it would pour out its blood. It would be sacrificed, and it would be offered. Period. End of story. But St. Paul reminds us to be a living sacrifice. One that sacrifices itself, that gives its life, that gives its blood, over and over and over again, freely. Not forced into it. Not just once. But continuously. To be offered to God. A wonderful thing for us. But a challenging thing for us. Because it's easy for us in a sense to think. That maybe if, if God called us to one big thing. Like the martyrs. You know if, if, if God called me to be a martyr. I could hopefully I pray. Cooperate with the grace of God. To say yes. And that sacrifice once it was done. Once I was dead. It was once it was done. Period. But the Lord comes to us every single day. Many times each day and says, will you sacrifice yourself for me here and now? It's not a great, good, a great big thing. It's not usually a, a, a beautiful and attractive thing. It's the small mundane things. And Lord says, will you sacrifice yourself here for me? And there it gets hard. Because it's easy to do it for the big things, but it's hard for the small things. So often we cling to our own, our own ways, our own devices, our own plans. But the Lord reminds us, whoever wishes to come after me, i.e. to go to heaven, must daily pick up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. Which is hard. To follow Christ. So St. Peter hated the idea. He rebukes him. He rebukes God for his plans. And wouldn't we like to do the same sometimes? When we give everything of ourselves to God, when I give God everything of my life, not just a piece, not just the majority, not the greater half, not just everything but that one little corner. When I give every single thing, every single piece of myself and of my life to God, sometimes it hurts. Every single one of us, if we do that, will inevitably come to us a day or a time when we make Jeremiah's words today our words. Lord, you duped me, and I let myself be duped. You got me, Lord. You said you would, you know, you, you told me to come follow you, and I did. And look where it's gotten me. Everything seems to be worse. Where's the grace? Where's the blessing, Lord? It seems too heavy. The cross that you're asking me, okay, all those other crosses, those were fine. Those are good. I can handle those. But the cross you're asking me to carry right now, the sacrifice you're making, you're asking me to make right now, that's too much, Lord. That's too much. All of us will come to that place. And in those moments, if we're willing to respond to the, to the grace of God, He will transform our hearts. Because Jeremiah utters those words and he says, I am done with the Lord. I will no longer proclaim His word. I will no longer be His prophet. I'm not going to do the things that He says for me to do any longer. I've had enough of the crosses. Everything I say, everything the Lord tells me to prophesy is death and violence. Everyone hates me because everything I say is negative because that's what the Lord is telling the people. And no one likes me. I hate being here. That's what He's saying. <laughs> He didn't want to do it. He wanted to be liked. And yet, he says, 
And as soon as I say these things, as soon as I close my heart off to God, something happens within, within my breast that a fire begins to burn. And a fire burns so intensely that I cannot help but become the prophet again. I cannot help but say these things. Even if I wanted to stop, I can't. Because the grace of God is so powerfully at work in me that it compels me to do this for love of Him. My brothers and sisters, if we give ourselves to Jesus Christ wholly and entirely, if we make ourselves this living sacrifice to Christ, on those days whenever the cross is too hard and we draw the line and say no, when we close off the doors of our heart, we recognize that a heat begins to grow. And within our breast, a fire increases. And it burns and it burns until it consumes us with love for God. And He transforms our heart. He purifies it, sanctifies it of all the filth that sometimes can be found there. And He makes us more like Himself. And we will be unable to hold back in doing what it is the Lord desires of us. The cross will become sweet. St. Therese of Lisieux knew this. She knew the gift of suffering because she had so often drawn the line to God. And so often her heart was purified and increasingly. That at the end of her life she said, I can no longer suffer because all, all suffering is sweetness. I can't suffer anymore. Because I know the Lord is with me. Even in the suffering I know that God is here. The cross is sweet by this point. She was 24. This is what God can do with us. If we just give ourselves to him. Every single week. To come to this church. And in the midst when everyone may be taking their personal intermission. In the quiet of your heart. Place yourself on the altar. The desires that you have. That you long to see fulfilled. Give them to the Lord. The sins that you continue to wrestle with, that you've been fighting with for years, that you can't seem to get rid of, give them to the Lord. The people in your life, your family, friends, or maybe people that you don't even know who are suffering, who need some extra prayers, who need God's grace poured upon them in an extra, in an extra portion in this time, put them on the altar. The dark places of our heart where sometimes we think, certainly the Lord couldn't love me there. Put it on the altar. To the extent that we give ourselves to the Lord, He will accept us. He will rejoice in it. The simple fact is that God does incredible things with bread and wine. He makes them into His own flesh and blood. And they remain here in the tabernacle for us to come and to pray and to find life and find peace. And if God can do all of that with flesh and blood, with bread and wine rather, think of what He does with His flesh and His blood that is ours when given to him. If we give ourselves to Christ, the Eucharist stays here. We leave the doors. We walk out into the world. And if we give ourselves to Christ, he will take us and he will transform us. And as we go out of those doors, we will be Christ. We will show the love of Christ, share the peace of Christ. We will have the words of Christ in our mind and on our lips. So that when others speak to us, we will speak to them. And it will not be us who speak, but it will be Christ. And if we speak to them of Christ, they will long to have what we have. They will thirst for it. They will pine for it in the depths of our hearts. 
And ultimately one day, they too will find themselves here, looking to be fed, to be filled with the gift of God's grace, as they too, we pray, pour themselves out on this holy altar. And so as we come here today, let us not check out. Let us not take the intermission in our minds, but rather let us give ourselves entirely to Christ, to place everything on the holy altar, that he might be able to receive us and transform us.